As we come back together this morning, we continue our study in the book of Acts and uh, culminating this opening section of Acts uh, with the baptism of Saul and reminding ourselves that we're looking at this as a, as a revolutionary book, a book in which, uh, as we just read in John, uh, Jesus acknowledges that he is a king. He's a king uh, of heaven who's come to earth that heaven might come to earth. He's not coming so that he can get a bunch of people off of this place and to some other place, but it's actually the invasion of heaven to earth. A, tra- a place where God dwells with his people, that this world might be transformed and that the way in which this world functions in its sin and its death would be undermined by the power of life and humility and service and grace and mercy and yes, justice. And so we've looked at this as one step after another where the disciples of Jesus keep doing things that are fundamentally at odds with the rhythms of the culture in which they live. Whether that culture is the culture of Jerusalem and the power brokers uh, in the temple, whether it is the common folk who have uh, in the regular small, why can I, I got Sanhedrin stuck in my head, this beautiful flow of this opening lost by my inability to come up with a word. Ben, what's the word? Synagogue. Thank you, Ben. The synagogue of the commoner, where, who, were, uh, who were stirred up by Stephen's preaching to the point that in their anger and frustration, they had Stephen again brought up before the leaders of the temple. And now that the temple folks, the leaders had the mob excited about what the Christians were doing in a negative way, uh, they took the opportunity to incite violence. And we know the tragedy of that story where Stephen is taken out and this man, Saul, gives approval to the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr after Christ himself. And after that, we have these amazing stories of the church dispersed. Uh, And initially, we see the power of Philip's preaching, this young deacon in the areas outside Jerusalem among the Samaritans. And then in that amazing story with the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who goes back to Ethiopia and becomes the founder of a church that still exists to this day. Brothers and sisters who have existed long before the church was even slightly present in Northern Europe. It is amazing to see the faithfulness of God. It's also amazing to see a God who pursues people who sometimes don't know that they are as far away as they really are. Saul certainly thought that he was absolutely in line with what God wanted. And he was pursuing what he understood as the ethics and the realities of the kingdom of God as he had studied it far more certainly than your minister has. He was an amazing scholar, a first tier of his generation. And yet in his zealousness for truth, he had left the basic tenets of who God was, a God who regularly upsets the order of things, a God who chooses a small tribe to make his people, 
A God who will choose the secondborn over the firstborn. A God who regularly uses the smaller to upset the larger. And Saul had missed that at this point. The uncharacteristic nature of the king. And so he had unfortunately had missed the power of what Jesus had done, even though it happened in his own lifetime. But Jesus did not leave Saul alone. But he pursues him even to the road on, of Damascus. And we will read the narrative uh, there in Acts chapter 9. If you have your scriptures, please open it with, and I will read this morning from the NIV. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went, out, uh, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard the voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul. For he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias Come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, regained his strength. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the God, our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your presence to be reminded through your word, through the faithful prayers of your people, through the sacrament of baptism that you are a God who draws near, through the passing of the peace that we are a people of peace. We ask this morning that as we open your word, 
we might see again the power of your word to transform our hearts and our lives in such a way that we might again be reminded of the freedom and the power that it is to serve our God, to be your disciples. And we pray that whatever is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you uh, caught in the news this week, uh, this young man, John Allen Chu, Chow, uh, martyred in uh, a little island off of India. It was a young man, 26 years old, uh, desired to share his faith uh, to a tribe that has been isolated on the island. In fact, one article I read said that the Indian government had placed almost a glass box around these two little islands, the Sentinel Islands, uh, and to keep these folks isolated and protected from any outside influences. And so effectively, they're still somewhat uh, Stone Age hunter-gatherer communities. And this young man figured out how to uh, uh, pay, bribe uh, some boat, uh, some fishermen to drive him out to the island. Then he rode a kayak in, and he was back and forth several days. And at some point, Uh, communication broke down, and apparently the inhabitants uh, killed him. And sadly, at this point, they haven't been able to uh, get his body, and they may not be able to, given the way the Indian government uh, interacts with those islands. Now, I was shocked by my own response to this, especially given the text, the sermon. I suppose it was somewhat uh, sanctimonious, like, what is a knucklehead doing The Indians said you couldn't go to that island. It is isolated. Why not respect the people and their culture? And I caught myself going, what on earth are you saying? At some point, this idea of playing nice with the Christian faith and and of not imposing, and all of those things we hear these days about uh, the colonialism that often followed the speaking and the preaching of the gospel, which was certainly lamentable. Right When you bring a white Jesus into Ethiopia or another place in Africa and say, that's your God, that's problematic and that's colonialism because we're pretty sure Jesus did not have blonde hair and blue eyes. But the power of the gospel going into those communities. My stars, we just found out that God transported Philip to a road in the desert so that an Ethiopian leader could hear the gospel and go share it in his culture. The gospel is about undermining cultures. And the reality is, if my liberal response was, oh, we should give those folks some space and some, you know, who are we to go impose and and, and share the gospel? And the knuckleheaded kid probably didn't know the language or didn't, you know, who knows what he did and he shouldn't have gone. And yet, if we really follow a king who is about a revolution, could we not? possibly imagine that those folks living on that island, although there's certain ways in which not being online would be a plus and they wouldn't have to endure some of the things we do in materialism. But near as we can tell, hunter-gatherer communities were not terribly pleasant or safe. Uh, Apparently, you can kill a guy if he shows up and you don't like the conversation. It's somewhat nice that we've evolved past that in our cultures. 
Uh, I don't know that it's terribly safe for women or for children. And of course, we do know that statistically in the hunter-gatherer communities, if your hunt didn't go well, then you felt perfectly happy to go over and steal the next tribe's food if their hunt went better. And you do so by killing and murder. There are certain ways in which perhaps the gospel might actually be useful in that culture. In the way in which the love and the power of the gospel would transform. Does that mean they all have to get iPhones? Heavens, no. That's cultural imperialism. But the reality that the power of the gospel and the ethics of love and grace and mercy that do not seek to respond to the other with murderous thoughts, but in fact grace. How often, how difficult it is for us to parse our own histories. And the tragedy of when the church has risen and taken the sword and used the sword as a means both of proselytizing and quote-unquote advancing its own culture and ethics. And we must guard our hearts as we read a passage like this where God is going to anoint a man to go and to preach the power of the gospel and to undermine Greek and Roman culture and even undermine certain aspects of Jewish diaspora culture and its understanding of where power and love and the reality of the gospel comes into view. It doesn't matter whether one is liberal or conservative or libertarian, we all have to come to grips with the fact that the kingdom ethics always transform, always transcend the best a human being can come up with any set of political or cultural ethics. The gospel always confronts us and often comforts us. So I want us to look this morning at being a disciple and being called as an ambassador to Christ. Paul calls himself an ambassador in Corinthians. We are all ambassadors, bringing the news, the good news, of the place where we are from to those who live far off, who only know cultures of power and wealth and money, the ability to use one's guile, one's beauty, one's physical force to attain what one wants and desires and to secure peace and comfort. The gospel comes and drives a huge hole in that idea. The life of Saul and Ananias does not embrace any of the cultural ideas we have today that come from our culture, whether it is in the West or whether it is on an island off the coast of India. It comes from the transcendent reality of God. And it calls all of us then to be ambassadors in our life, in our actions, and in our words. So, four, four characteristics we see in this text. There is a listening component to it. There is a trust component. There is a going component. And there is a suffering component. So, first of all, listening. Uh, Paul, Saul at this point in verse 9, he's fasting, right? He's blinded. He's had, this relation, he's had this encounter with Christ. He's processing that encounter and he is fasting, listening for what God would do. His entire worldview has been shaken. He realizes he has been blind to the truth of who Christ is. The question is now, what happens next? I'm blind. I'm in a foreign town. Yes, I'm in a safe place, perhaps until someone knows 
So what is Saul's first response? My first response would be to figure out how to get back to Jerusalem as fast as possible. Right? I would problem solve this. Saul goes quiet. He fasts and he prays. What is it that God would do? Saul knew enough from his background and his history, the good traditions of his Jewish faith, that to be still and know that he is God is one of the brilliant things that the psalm says. And that God does honor those focused times of prayer and fasting to hear the voice of God. And God had spoken to him. God had spoken and said, I'm going to send someone to you to cure your blindness and to baptize you. His name will be Ananias. Again, the pressures that we feel mounting in the speed of this time of year with travel, with school, with work, with end-of-the-year projects that are due both in our families and in our occupations. Listening. Being still. Is there a sense in which in the midst of our most pressing times, it seems the most impossible thing we can do is to be still and listen? And yet isn't there great wisdom every time we know in Scripture that folks do this, there is at the very least a recognition that the world is bigger than the pressures we feel and that we have a God who is even bigger than the world itself. To be still and know that he is God. To remove ourselves through fasting from the, the tyranny of the body in its expression of immediate needs for pleasure and for cessation of its desires. It's not that the body is bad. This is not an anti-food sermon or point. God gave us all of those good gifts we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday on purpose because we know of the significance of feasting with the Lord. And yet, there is a place for putting our body in its proper context to aid us in our spiritual journey, not to demand that we head off in another direction to care for it more than we care for our souls. So at a moment of crisis, a man who has known God his whole life, who has gotten very, very far off course from the truth of who God is and the revelation of Jesus, but a man who has known God his whole life, Saul knows what to do when his world comes crashing down. He prays and he fasts and he focuses on the Lord. The second person we have is Ananias. We don't know much about his story. Uh, he only appears here and then disappears. We don't know if he had fled from Jerusalem or if he'd been somebody who maybe perhaps had uh, had the impact of the sermon at Pentecost and had gone home. We just don't know how Ananias found out about the good news of Jesus Christ. But we know he was a faithful follower and we also know that he too was able to hear the voice of God. His answer, interestingly enough, is the same in the Greek as Samuel's answer in 1 Samuel. When Samuel is called three times by the Lord as a boy in the temple, his response is instantaneous. Here I am, Lord. What would you have me do? That is the heart of one listening for the next thing that the Lord would have us do. How often in my own heart, and I'm sure I'm the only one in the room, 
because basically your minister is the most sinful person in order that you all can feel better about how you're doing. Is that I know regularly what I have is my plans and then I'm desperately trying to get God to go along with whatever my next thing is. So the question is, is God listening to me? Not am I listening to God? I have some things that need to get done, some of them outside of my control, and I'm listening to hear God say, yes, EC, what would you have me do? Apparently in Scripture, it usually goes the other way. There is a good rhythm to where just being still, reflecting on the power and the nature of God, reflecting on the call to be an apostle, I mean, uh, to be an ambassador, to, to be a shepherd, to be an evangelist, to be one who has uh, gifts of mercy and care. Lord, what would you have me do? To listen that the Lord might lead. Again, a disciple, one who is going to be an effective ambassador. Because again, an ambassador does not speak their own opinion to a great degree. The ambassador goes on behalf of the one who sends, the government who sends them, in this case, our king. And the king says, this is your message. This is your role. And so we listen. Both Ananias and Saul at this moment are listening for what God would do. Second of all, there's trust, right? Saul's blind, uh, so he's trusting that he is led through the city. He's trusting that God has a plan for this. And he's trusting that what God said will come true, that this blindness that happened because of his encounter with the divine is going to be undone when Ananias arrives and baptizes him. Saul has, and again, we, we might quickly gloss over this. God has said he has a plan for Saul, but he also said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now again, Saul is wise enough to know that the oppression of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate is a bad idea. The Old Testament prophets seem rather against it. Not only that, is there the oppression of those who are God's faithful? Nothing worse than those who oppress the faithful of God. And some of the harshest language in the Old Testament is against those who harm the most vulnerable among his people. Saul is now coming to grips with the fact that he is one of those. He's become the thing that he feared, that he hated the most. In his zealousness for God, he's trusting now in the rest of the Psalms that he knows. That God is slow to anger and abounding in love. That he will not always accuse, but will show grace and mercy. Paul, Saul now has to put his hand, himself in the hands of a loving God that he also knows is a God of justice. He's got to be reflecting on that amazing passage in Micah to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Saul now prays, knows that those words have to be true. Because if they're not, and it's only justice, he is a man condemned. There is a massive amount of trust on Saul's part for this risen Jesus that he met on the road to Damascus. 
Will his plans for Saul be for life or for death? Ananias, Ananias knows who Saul is, right? Verse 13 and 14. This is a man who has been oppressing your people in Jerusalem and came here to oppress us. You want me to go downtown, right, to, to Straight Street was kind of the nice part of town. This is probably a well-to-do uh, Jewish fellow merchant, probably one of the major contributors to the synagogue, the, guy, the place where Saul was supposed to go, uses a base of operation to go and find all of the people following the way. So he's in this house. This isn't exactly a house that Ananias would have chosen to walk into. He has to trust that the God who's sending him there is sending him there for a purpose. I don't even know that he can trust that he's going to get back out of the house. It doesn't always work that way. But he trusts God. He has to trust God. Even though he knows who Saul is and the danger that he's possibly putting himself in. Just because Saul's down and out doesn't mean that the people that went with Saul don't have the same agenda wouldn't hold Ananias captive if he showed up to take care of Saul. Again, how often do we negotiate with the divine, negotiate with our king? I'll go, but if you tell me how it's going to end, right? Uh, choosing a job. Is this job going to end up being the greatest job I ever chose? God, tell me if this is the right thing to do. Very rarely do any of us get an answer. If I go, if I take this step of faith to uh, move, to plant a church, to share my faith with this person who may no longer be my friend if I mention Jesus, fill in the blank where this aspect of trust and we count the cost and we say, can you tell me that this will turn out okay? It's not trust. Right? To some degree, that's more like, and again, this was wise in dealing with the Russians on uh, nuclear arms, but that's the old Reagan line, truth with verification, which of course is the old Russian proverb. Trust, but verify. I don't know that that's really our place when it comes to interacting with Christ. To some degree, one might imagine that with his arms splayed and the scars on his hand and his side in full view, what part of me do you think is untrustworthy? Will I not care for you? Have I not gone to the nth degree for you? And I don't mean that as guilt because we could look at that and, oh, I don't have enough trust. Go, no, actually, I could trust him in a positive way, not in a guilt way. There's nothing worse than trying to trust God out of a sense of guilt that I don't have enough trust for God. That you will just end up spending most of your time feeling bad about how little trust you have for God. But to imagine the glory of it, to imagine the power of it, and stepping out in a sense of trust and faith because a powerful God has called you to do this next thing, that could be an exciting motivation. And saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, but I will trust. See, God does not use guilt to motivate us. He doesn't use shame to motivate us. He does call us in trusting to take a step. And if last time you didn't, it doesn't change his love for you. 
But when we look at those who serve God and are used by God in Scripture, those who have been faithful ambassadors, one of their characteristics is trust. And very rarely do they have all of the answers as to how their journey will end up. Going. This kind of follows uh, on trust, and so we can keep this point short. Going, Ananias goes to Saul. Uh, he, he goes. Now we go, of course he goes. God showed up and told him to go. Come on, we all know our Bibles. Jonah, go where? I'll go that way. In Jesus' parable of the two lost sons, the younger brother comes home. The father is throwing a feast. The older brother won't come into the house because the younger brother is back and his God is too, his dad is too nice and too gracious and he sacrificed the fattened calf for this party. And the older brother groans that he's never gotten a goat. And the father says, hasn't it always been yours? Haven't you always been in my home? And the terrifying part of that parable is that it ends with the older brother still standing outside and not coming into the feast. Going actually isn't as easy as we may think. And it isn't any easier when God shows up in power and in glory or in a voice, in a dream, in a vision and says, go and talk to a man who is rounding up and killing Christians. There are lots of reasons for us to believe that our response would be that was just dinner talking. Or maybe it's just too dangerous and I choose not to. Do you have an easier task for me to do? Going is not as easy as we think. The children of Israel are halfway through the desert and they look back to Egypt fondly. Going is not as easy as we think. We shouldn't underestimate it. It is something we must encourage one another in. To be each other's strength by the power of the Holy Spirit. That as we hear God, as we trust His goodness, and then as He calls us to go, whether it's across town or around the world, Matters not. Sometimes it's those short journeys that are the most difficult. Because we know those folks too well. Or they know us too well. We know that Saul is going. He's going to go across the entire known Roman Empire. Share the gospel. Get stoned. Lowered in a basket. Great story. Flee cities shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. Which leads us to the last point, which is suffering. How challenging it is that Jesus says, this isn't because there's retribution, because Saul's been a knucklehead. This isn't, all right, you're going to persecute me? Well, guess what? Then your discipleship is going to be one of the most pain and suffering because I am a tit-for-tat God. No. No. It'd be tempting to go that way, but that, I don't think that's it. I think we know better than that, right? Jesus is saying that this suffering is the reality of pouring oneself on behalf of the other. To give oneself without expecting to get anything in return, except for 
the reality that we are living in the will of God, that he is our power, that he is our strength, that he is our God. And if he sent us, he will provide for us whether or not the people we are to be ambassadors to ever acknowledge the work we do or who our king is. See, of course, there is plenty of sustaining power and love. That's God himself. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it great that, again, we've had interesting uh, throughout the book of Acts uh, stories about the Holy Spirit coming and the Holy Spirit not coming and then the apostles having to be baptized and there's all kinds of mysteries as to what is happening with the presence of the Holy Spirit in the early chapters of Acts. But what we do know is that when Ananias comes and baptizes Saul, that he will get the Holy Spirit, he does receive the Holy Spirit. And now that he has all that he needs, he will suffer. Suffer on behalf of the other. Suffer on behalf of his own people who will reject him. His own blood, much the way his Savior did. He will pour himself out for those who have never known God and who have conquered his people. And he will suffer the realities in our culture where in, by God's grace and to our own temptation, we are beginning to create multiple generations that have not known as a culture pervasive suffering. We know that there are way too many kids in poverty in our country. We know that there are many who still suffer. But as a culture... We have been unmolested by wars on our own soil. We haven't had a major crisis in the same way of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. By God's grace since World War II, there has been relatively a peaceful, affluent, fairly low suffering as a culture in our continent. And that is an amazing blessing. It can also begin to tempt us that suffering in and of itself is something to be avoided. That because we have been relatively able to avoid it as a culture and as a country, that suffering is actually something to be avoided. But we know that Paul's own words in Romans 5 tells us that our suffering produces the character, the character of our Savior. That suffering is a tool in the hand of our king. As we care for others, we know how much we are cared for by Christ. Because we have a king who does not sit absent his willingness to suffer. But we have one who led the charge against sin and death. Who entered into this world. Again, if I just told you, take these ideas into your head. See the great example of Jesus and go off and be like Jesus and be like Saul. It would crush us all but to be reminded that the one that we see, John will see later in the book of Revelation at, at, in the same vision. I saw a lamb that was slain, and as I looked, there was the Lion of Judah. Absolute powerlessness, absolute self-sacrifice, and the power of the lion in the same vision. This is your king, one who comes near. 
washes the feet of his disciples, dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, gave himself so that we need not fear death, we need not fear suffering, because this is still just a preface, my friends. This is the shortest period in your existence and my existence. Eternity lies before us, the new heavens and the new earth. The promises are not just there, they're in our hearts now. As we can follow in the way to listen to who and what God would have us hear. To grow in our trust because we see Jesus' trust and how the Lord, his Father, delivered him. To see the power of Jesus' going and the lives transformed because he came to you and gave himself for you. He did not stay home. He was the better older brother who went out and saw the lost sheep, found them and brought you home. And he suffered for you. That you might not have to suffer eternal. That is an amazing God. It is one that we rest. And the more that we drill into our hearts and press upon our hearts, the work of Christ on our behalf, the more we will hear his voice, his comfort, and we will know where he's going and where he would lead us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you that you are with us. Lord, may we know your presence. We thank you that you do not ask us to do anything that you have not done for us. And we pray that we would rest in that and that that would allow us to delight in co-laboring with you. We thank you for this. We thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen.